0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Seventy years ago, our parents worried that the Kremlin was working to undermine American democracy around the world. Uh, And here in America, Moscow was using its operatives to steal American secrets Communist parties and front organizations like the World Peace Committee and the World Federation of Trade Unions were organizing demonstrations to sow disorder in America and other democracies. And Russian propaganda and disinformation attacked the beliefs of ordinary citizens in the fairness of the American system Uh, to get a sense of the drama that our, our parents were facing Uh, consider this very simple video clip from a newsreel of the age.
2: Will there be peace or war? The fateful question posed by Warren Austin, head of the United States delegation to the UN, set the mood of the world at the century's halfway mark. The seating of nationalist China's delegate on the Security Council precipitated a clash between the Free Nations and the Soviet bloc, which only ended with the abrupt departure of Jacob Malik, head of the Red Delegation, a blunder they were to regret when the invasion of South Korea by North Korean Reds came up for consideration by the Council. In the absence of Soviet obstruction, the Security Council voted overwhelmingly in favor of armed intervention to protect the Korean Republic. It was the first police action sanctioned against an aggressor by the Parliament of Nations. In 1950, men throughout the world learned to look on the brutal face of communism. Berlin, powder keg of Europe, saw a mass demonstration of indoctrinated young Germans on May Day. France was also beset by communist-inspired strife. Red Union members adopted violent methods to prevent the unloading of Marshall Plan aid. And across the world in Japan, America's stronghold in the Pacific, the busy commies were at it again. Students went on a rampage in Tokyo with something less than successful results when opposed by Japanese police aided by occupation military police. But far more sinister to Americans was home-front communism. Union Square in New York was the backdrop for these scenes of red violence. From their ranks will come the saboteurs, spies, and subversives should World War III be forced upon America. Underlining the menace from within was Valentin Gubachev, who received secret documents from Judith Copland, government employee. This Soviet functionary in the United Nations was deported following his conviction.
1: Well, here we are. 70 years later, and we're worrying about similar types of involvement by the Russians in our domestic affairs. The Russian involvement in the United States presidential election of 2016 is not the first time that the Russian government has attempted to influence American public opinion or public affairs, but the events do represent uh, a substantial uh, Increase in the use of the most modern techniques of cyber technology for the purposes of espionage, propaganda, disinformation, and active measures. I want to start with a brief review or timeline of the Russian involvement leading up to the 2016 presidential election in the United States. What I'm going to present is information as we know it today on February 27, 2018, The information is all in the public domain, so I'm not divulging any secrets, even if I knew any. Um, And this timeline is tentative, since we may learn entirely new things uh, in the coming months. In early 2014, that is two and a half years before the actual election of the president, there was a detectable uptake in covert uh, intrusions by Russian intelligence operatives into the state and local election boards to gather information about our election procedures. At the same time, the Russian government contractor, called the Internet Research Agency, began its project, which, in the words of the Department of Justice, was to spread distrust towards the candidates and the political system in general. And the Russian agency sent three employees to collect information in ten different states, including California. Active measures actually began the following year. In 2015, the Internet Research Agency, and this is what we believe is its headquarters in St. Petersburg, began purchasing ads on social media sites in the United States. And in July 2015, Russian intelligence operatives first gained access to the computers of the Democratic National Committee and maintained this for about a year until at least June 2016. In 2016... During the election year itself, all of this preparatory work was activated for the election. In March 2016, eight months before the election, the international Russian media, such as as Russia Today Television and Sputnik Radio, began a propaganda campaign of reports about the uh, U.S. presidential campaign. According to the Department of Justice indictment that was issued about a week and a half ago, During the election campaign, the goal of the Internet Research Agency uh, operation became, quote, to communicate derogatory information about Hillary Clinton. I've misspelled it there. That's not their fault. Uh, To denigrate other candidates such as Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and to support uh, Bernie Sanders and then candidate Donald Trump. Also in March 2016, Russian military intelligence, that is the GRU, uh, became directly involved in the uh, operation to exfiltrate documents from the Democratic National Committee. And by May, the GRU had exfiltrated a substantial cache of documents. The Russian effort kicked into high gear in early summer 2016 as the American presidential campaign got underway. In early June, a Russian lawyer with close ties to the Kremlin reached out to the Trump campaign with an offer of dirt on Hillary Clinton. And on June 9th, two Russians with close ties to Russian intelligence, Natalia Veselnitskaya and Rinat Akhmetchin, together with her translator, met with Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, and Jared Kushner, and two others in the Trump Tower in New York. Also in June 2016, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, announced that its computers had been hacked. The hackers were identified as operatives with known ties to the GRU, that is to Russian military intelligence, operating under the code names Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. And soon some of the hacked materials began to appear on the website DCLeaks and were distributed by Guccifer 2.0. Both DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0 are apparently creations of Russian military intelligence. DCLeaks was reportedly created as a false front that would look like it was run by American activists in Washington, D.C., uh, when in fact it was a creation of Russian intelligence. On July 22nd, WikiLeaks published 20,000 emails that had been hacked from the D- uh, Democratic National Committee computers, And so we had, uh, between those, uh, a very substantial part of what had been taken uh, from the DNC. The summer was also an intense period of the propaganda assault. Measures undertaken by the Internet uh, Research Agency included buying ads on social media like Facebook and Instagram, using social media to organize or support rallies in New York City, Washington, D.C., and major Florida cities under such slogans as March for Trump and Florida uh, Goes Trump. The agency also paid select individuals to participate in or perform tasks in these rallies. For example, they paid someone apparently uh, to build a a cage and then paid an actor to sit in the cage as uh, as a prisoner um, of Hillary Clinton. By the early uh, fall, according to the Department of of Justice indictment, the Internet Research Agency operation alone, designed to influence the election, just that part of their actually much more substantial operations, had grown to at least 80 persons with a budget of one and a quarter million dollars per month. At the September G20 summit in China, uh, President Obama believed that this uh, operation on the basis of the information available to at, uh, to him at that time had reached such a t- uh, an extent that he needed to directly approach the Russian president. And so he re- raised the issue of cybersecurity with pres- President Vladimir Putin during a 90-minute private meeting. But there's no evidence of any resolution concerning the issue And there is no evidence of change in Russian behavior uh, after the G20 meeting. On October 7th, WikiLeaks released emails sent by John Podesta, who was chair of Hillary Clinton's election campaign. A joint statement issued by the United States Department of Homeland Security and Director of National Intelligence asserted that the source of the emails was the Russian government. But promptly, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks and the Russian government denied any involvement uh, in this leak. Or any Russian involvement in this leak. On October 31st, as the evidence of Russian meddling grew and Election Day grew closer, President Obama used the crisis uh, or red phone or hotline, as it was known long ago, to call President Putin in the Kremlin but we have no evidence that even this produced any change in Russian behavior. The November 8th election of Donald Trump as our president did not end the propaganda campaign by the Internet Research Agency. On November 12th, it, uh, the, the agency supported two competing rallies in New York City, one for and one against Mr. Trump. On November 19th, it helped organize a rally in Charlotte, North Carolina, against Mr. Trump. On December 29th, President Obama announced that sanctions would be imposed against Russia, including blacklisting four GRU officials and expelling 35 diplomats known to be engaged in intelligence operations inside the United States. The next day, President Obama ordered the closing of two Russian compounds, at Upper Brookville, Long Island, and Centerville, Maryland, which were retreats for the Russian diplomatic community and centers for Russian intelligence activities. On December 30th, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia would not respond by expelling American diplomats and even invited their families to a Kremlin-sponsored New Year's party. But seven months later... As legislation imposing new sanctions on Russia progressed through Congress, on July 30, 2017, Putin ordered the reduction of the American embassy staff in Moscow by 755 persons and closed properties used by the diplomatic community in Moscow, including a warehouse and a park retreat area on the edges of town. Two days later, on August 3rd, President Trump signed into law new sanctions against Russia, but declined to impose uh, all the provisions at that time. Most recently, the Department of Justice filed its indictment of 13 persons associated with the Internet Research Agency. Just as a footnote, it's important to note the three counts of the indictment against the 13 Russians named uh, in the indictment. The first count is a conspiracy to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful governmental functions of the United States by dishonest means, and those governmental functions are conducting democratic elections. The second count is a conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, and the third count is aggravated Identity theft. That is, they stole identities in order to set up fake internet uh, websites uh, and to send uh, emails. On the first count of disrupting governmental operations, the 13 Russians are charged with making certain expenditures as foreigners to influence the elections through electioneering communications, failing to register as foreign agents engaged in political activities inside the United States and providing false information to secure visas to travel to the United States. Those people who showed up in 2014 uh, applied for visas, and they didn't tell anybody that the reason they were there was to scope out our election procedures (laughs) and plot to undermine them. Uh, It goes without saying, these are three serious crimes, and each of the specific charges describes a very substantial violation of American laws. So to summarize, what did the Russians do to interfere in the 2016 election? First of all, they engaged in hacking, exfiltration, and leaking of documents from email accounts and computers. What was leaked tended to be true information, but was apparently released very selectively to support the purposes and the messages of the Russian government. Secondly... The Russians undertook active measures to rally demonstrations and perhaps even create flash mobs. Some of these were mobilized on the basis of false rumors, but often it was simply rallying like-minded individuals behind a shared cause. It's worth noting also that not all Russian efforts to mobilize these flash mobs work. There are stories of attempting to create, create mobs and They would send out these messages and no one showed up. But there were enough of these rather substantial demonstrations in New York City, uh, Washington, D.C., and Florida to which they made a very substantial contribution. Third, the Russians spread disinformation on social media by paying trolls, that is humans, to manufacture some stories. Indeed, that agency office apparently was populated by uh, by young English-speaking Russians who made up stories uh, that were then distributed. And paying these trolls and using Internet robots or bots to distribute these messages and to pick up messages trending on the uh, the Internet and sending them, uh, distributing them even more widely. Fourth, the Russian government-controlled broadcast media, that is, the broadcast media controlled by the Russian government, notably Russia Today Television and Sputnik Radio, spread the Russian interpretation of news around the world. Typically, this type of propaganda is most effective if it is based on some facts against which people can can measure uh, the story. But the facts are usually carefully chosen, sometimes a little twisted, sometimes a little manufactured, and a lot of things are just simply omitted from the story to send the message. These operations were done so as to maximize deniability for the Russian political leadership, and so Russia used agents of influence, that is, trustworthy communicators, to transmit messages such as WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks is not a Russian-owned operation, I don't think, uh, but, <laughs> but it, is, and it has trustworthiness in a, for a larger audience, and it's been a very useful conduit. Cutouts, that is, intermediaries, including computer programs that disguise the source of news stories or rumors, such as, originally, Guccifer 2.0, though that has become known, and so it's no longer very useful in that way. Uh, Front organizations like RT Television, which the Russian government has long maintained is an independent news source, when in fact we know uh, quite otherwise and false flag operations that appear to be operations uh, of someone else, such as D.C. leaks and any number of non existent groups during the campaign, such as a group called Secured Borders, another called United Muslims of of America, and... uh, Quite interestingly, a number of groups like uh, the uh, Yes, California campaign and the Texas Secedes campaign and so forth, which are, some of them are uh, Russian manufacturers. The major themes in the propaganda and disinformation campaign included attacks on the specific candidates disfavored by the Russian government. And so there were stories of Hillary Clinton's physical and mental health uh, her purported corruption and using office to secure contributions, uh, the Clinton Foundation's alleged ties to Islamic extremism, and the dangers of a Clinton presidency, such as the prospects of war with uh, with Russia. What impresses me about, for example, the, the the message, the Satan message on the on the far left is. That's incredibly crude. I thought that went out with the 1920s, you know, with the bloodsuckers of capitalism types of propaganda. But, no, this was a very simple, crude campaign of propaganda. But most Russian propaganda did not support or attack specific candidates, but sought to sow alienation and discord in the American public. For example, stories included warnings of widespread corruption and voting fraud in the American electoral process. Most Facebook ads funded by the Internet Research Agency featured divisive social issues like race, immigration, gay rights, and religion. These ads and Twitter feeds distributed competing ads appealing to both black and white rage, that is, playing both sides against one another, One fake story apparently created by the Russian claimed that Muslim American men were drawing welfare checks for up to five wives apiece. What were the operational or immediate objectives of this meddling in the American election? This is inevitably far more speculative and must rely on inferences we can draw from the patterns that we see in the current operations matched to our understanding of the broader outlines of Russian behavior, particularly in the past decade, and our general theories about the larger objectives in Russian foreign policy. The Russians probably did not have extraordinary knowledge or foresight, at least none better than the rest of us, To predict that Donald Trump would emerge as the Republican candidate or that he would win the November election. For the Kremlin and for President Vladimir Putin in particular, there may have been evolving motives which reflected a changing political context that no one would have imagined all the way back in 2014. At each point, Putin and others in the Kremlin may have had multiple layered expectations of possible outcomes of meddling, varying probabilities of success with regard to different uh, uh, operational objectives. And as the campaign evolved, they were probably constantly updating their estimation of the probability of achieving these different objectives as new information became available. And when I say for Putin, I do mean to say that it is highly unlikely, given what we know, that this Russian operation would have gone forward without his approval. That is, there is nothing in our broader understanding of how Russian foreign policy decisions are made that would lead us to expect that Putin uh, was was not asked for his blessing before this became a major undertaking. The operational objectives may have included, first of all, revenge to get back at the U.S. government and the Democrats in particular, the Obama administration, and Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, for their support of the 2011-2012 Russian election protests against Putin, for the American role in the release of the Panama Papers that showed the enormous offshore holdings of some Russians very close to Putin, and for the American role in pressing the doping scandal that barred Russians from the Olympics. A second operational objective may have been signaling that Russia wanted to talk about interference in domestic affairs. Their interference, our interference. One of the curious features of the whole operation is the sloppiness that left Russian fingerprints all over each of these operations. It's as though they wanted to be known A third operational objective may have been to erode confidence in the anticipated Hillary Clinton presidency. Possibly operating on the assumption that Clinton was the most likely winner, the Russians wanted to weaken her hand abroad after the election. A fourth operational objective may have been to erode confidence in American democracy, both inside the United States and abroad, by feeding the suspicion that the electoral process was corrupt and the outcome was illegitimate. A fifth operation may have, operational objective may have been to sow discord and disorder in American society. This would cripple America overseas, no matter who became president, as Washington confronted deadlock in Congress and disorder on the streets. And sixth, just possibly, the Russians hoped they could influence the outcome of the election. Well, that seems to have been a long shot prior to November of 2016. So what do the Russians say about this?
2: Here's a little clip our top story this hour. The U.S. Justice Department has indicted 13 Russian nationals over alleged meddling in America's 2016 presidential election. However, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein says these charges don't mean any alleged Russian meddling altered the election's outcome. RT's Caleb Morping reports.
0: It's being widely reported uh, that these individuals, 13 Russian individuals as well as three Russian entities, are being charged with meddling in the U.S. election. But if you actually read the indictment, uh, there are specific charges. There's no such crime under the U.S. federal law known as meddling. Uh, At this point, they're being charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States as well as violations of the Federal Elections Commissions Act and the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Essentially, it's alleged that these uh, 13 people, as well as three entities, purchased advertisements on social media, um, engaged in Banks transactions and tried to influence the elections of the United States. Uh, They supposedly were disparaging Hillary Clinton and favoring Donald Trump. This is just the latest in the ongoing Bob Mueller special counsel investigation being conducted by the Department of Justice into allegations that Trump allegedly colluded with Russia during the presidential elections um, and that Russia is somehow responsible for the election results. Um, Now, at this point, there has already been testimony Before the U.S. Congress about the impact of these alleged Facebook ads and how they may have determined the elections, this is some of what we heard before the U.S. Congress showing that the impact of these ads may not be as broad as some of the mainstream media reports seem to hint. Uh They found portals into our society.
1: Russia has harnessed the tremendous and, quite frankly, to me, frightening power of social media. Their goal is to divide us and discredit our democracy. They are using our own social networks, our friendships, our families,
2: and our biases and viewpoints against us. It is spread like wildfire.
0: We determined that the number of accounts we could link to Russia, and that were are tweeting election-related content, was comparatively small.
1: Aggregate, these ads and posts were a very small fraction of the overall content on Facebook. But any amount is too much.
0: mostly had low view counts.
1: The report continues with a quote from the Russian foreign ministry uh, and a talking head, the talking head specialist and yet another talking head specialist. And what's interesting about this is that the, the whole tone is one of scorn, of the indictment as sort of a childish nonsense and you might have gotten a bit of that which was the um, you know the juxtaposition oh those politicians in the senate making those claims with the heavy music and then the light and you know airy music as though we're seeing the truth from the experts that is the people from the internet community that juxtaposition was was intended to influence you Uh, Throughout the whole whole video, the the tone is just dismissive, as though this indictment is of no consequence. Uh, Interestingly, this report focuses on the question, did the Russian actions change the outcome of the election? But that is the weakest of the claims about the Russian meddling, a claim that the Department of Justice, in fact, did not make in its indictment. There is some misrepresentation of the indictment, a form of half-truth about what's in the indictment. I told you what was in the, the three counts of the indictment. That's not exactly what, they, what they're telling you, which is that it's uh, in, the, in this report. And there's significant distortion in so as far as the report omits so many of the other charges against the Russian meddling by focusing only on the impact of the election outcome. This brings us to the question, how does this fit into the larger context in which the Putin government decided to undertake this operation? How did these Russian operations in our elections fit into or serve the larger strategic goals of the Russian government? Now, for this, we have to draw inferences from what the Russians tell us about their larger strategic goals, together with with what we observe about actual Russian behavior and our general theories about what makes the Russians' government tick. Since the breakup of the Soviet Union in December 1991, Russian leaders have raised objections to various elements of American foreign policy. But in the 1990s, while Russia was weakened by internal turmoil under Boris Yeltsin, these were muted complaints. But as Russia recovered under Vladimir Putin uh, from 2000 onward, the Russian government began to articulate a comprehensive challenge to America. A widely noted break in Russian foreign policy came in Vladimir Putin's speech to the Munich Conference on Security in February of or 2007. 2007. This new challenge was repeated and refined in Russia's official statements of foreign policy, national security strategy, and military doctrine over the decades since 27. According to these uh, official documents, the Russian government sees the international arena in which they live as fraught with dangers to Russian security and the survival of the Russian government. The world is filled with instability, they say, instability that gives rise to such dangers as terrorism and military confrontation between the major powers. The most recent foreign policy concept of December 2016 warns, quote, force is becoming an increasingly important factor in international relations amid escalating political, social, and economic contradictions, and growing uncertainty in the global political system and economy. In the view of the Russian government, this danger is magnified because the end of the Soviet Union brought a pullback uh, of Russian positions. Indeed, in 2005, Vladimir Putin described the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, Well, from his view, in Moscow, it was a great geopolitical catastrophe. The colored areas were the the dark blue is Russia, the light blue are what used to be parts of the Soviet Union that is therefore under direct Moscow control. The purplish areas were allies of Moscow, either in the satellites of Eastern Europe, Mongolia, North Korea, uh, Vietnam. Um, That the front line of confrontation with NATO and so forth was many miles away from Moscow. Today, the front lines have been drawn inward towards the very borders of Russia today, particularly with the admission of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, uh, and the growing talk of uh, admission of Ukraine and Georgia to NATO. So from the Russian view, this is a very insecure world, a very dangerous world, and they, in particular, Uh, are in a very dangerous position. In this new world, the Russian government sees the West, and particularly the United States, as playing hardball. In the view of the Russian government, at least according to its public statements, the West, and particularly the United States, is seeking to maintain its predominance by encircling and containing Russia. The Russians say that the West uh, proclaims its objective to be democracy, But the Russians believe that this is actually a drive to establish or maintain global hegemony. In the words of the 2015 Russian National Security Strategy, quote, Russia's independent foreign and domestic policies is met with resistance on the part of the United States and its allies, which try to maintain their dominance in world affairs. And in this Russian view, the ultimate Western objective is Russia itself, dominating Russia and replacing the government of Vladimir Putin by a pro-Western regime. The Russian government claims that American predominance has led to American unilateralism in major international crises. The Russians complained that the American military operations against Serbia in 1999, Iraq in 2003, Libya in 2011, and now in Syria have been attempts to establish pro-American regimes, whether democracies or not. The Russians portray the expansion of NATO into the Baltics and possibly into Ukraine and Georgia as a plan to surround Russia militarily with anti-Russian alliances. The Russians portray the American support for the color revolutions in Georgia in 2003 Ukraine in 2004 and 2014, and in Kyrgyzstan in 25 and in the the Arab Spring, as attempts to force regime change, not for democracy, but to shift the global balance of power against Russia. And the support by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for the wave of protests in Russia against Putin in 2011-2012 and U.S. government funding of civil society organizations in Russia are portrayed as parts of a strategy to engineer regime change in Russia itself. This is not to say that this is an accurate description of the world, (laughs) but it is the, the way that the Russians say they see it, and the way they behave seems to suggest they really do see it this way, and how we deal with this perception is very difficult. It should be added as an aside. The Russian government's view gives no public acknowledgement to the fact that its own actions may be a major source of some of its own worst problems, such as leading many of its neighbors to turn against Russia out of fear, but then Few governments uh, in the world are uh, so so self-aware. The Russian government calls for counterbalancing against America and its allies. Russia claims to foresee an emerging polycentric system of international relations, or a multipolar international system as they describe it. Yet the Russian government recognizes that Russia is far too weak to challenge the United States by economic or military means in a direct head-to-head contest. And so their foreign policy seems to rely on opportunities that arise that can be used to exploit Western vulnerabilities in economic or military affairs. And his foreign policy gives a very large role to instruments of soft power such as diplomacy, propaganda, active measures, as in this election, to seize opportunities as they arise and to weaken Russia's adversary. Russia is unable to compete with the United States in economic power. In 2016, its GDP was about one-fifth that of the United States. In per capita GDP, that is, in individual wealth, it was about half that of the United States. Indeed, the total size of the Russian economy placed it about 12th in the world at large. Russia's imprint on the global economy was substantially less than America's. In 2016, the volume of Russia's trade was about one-ninth that of the United States. Russia's direct foreign investment abroad was less than one-seventeenth that of the United States. The exception to this economic footprint was in the energy sector, where Russia was the world's largest gas producer and world's largest gas exporter, and in some years it was also the world's largest oil exporter as well. In military capabilities, Russia is no match for the United States today, except in the field of nuclear weapons, and even there, Russia could not sustain a major arms race against the United States. In 2016, Russia spent less than one-ninth as much as the United States on its military overall. Indeed, it ranked only fourth in total expenditures behind the United States, China, and Saudi Arabia. In 2016, Russia's active-duty armed forces were less than three-fifths the size of America's, Russia ranked only fifth in the world behind China, the United States, India, and North Korea. And Russia lagged behind the United States in military technology. In short, Russia's instruments of hard power are limited in size, they're limited in reach, and they depend on local advantages such as in the areas immediately adjoining Russia, like eastern Ukraine or northern Georgia, or even Syria, which is actually not that far away. In order to make the most of its weakness in hard power, Russia looks for vulnerabilities to exploit so as to balance against the United States, and it relies on the few tools that it does have to compete against the United States. As in previous periods of profound weakness in its instruments of hard power, Russia has turned to emphasizing instruments of soft power, diplomacy, and propaganda to fill the gaps in power. For example, in diplomacy, Russia has used its veto in the United Nations Security Council vigorously to put a roadblock in the way of the Security Council endorsing American action against the governments of Syria, Iran, or North Korea. Russia alleges that U.N. security votes have been misused by the United States as licenses to establish predominance in Iraq, Libya, and elsewhere. Russia sees its vetoes as a constraint on American freedom of action. In the diplomatic realm, Russia seeks to build closer ties with other middle powers that share an interest in limiting American power. Russia seeks to forge Brazil, India, China, and South Africa into a coalition called BRICS, for just the first letter of each of those countries, as a force to resist the United States. Russia has provided Iran with air defense systems to protect against American or Israeli attacks. Russia apparently provides North Korea support behind the scenes to escape sanctions imposed by the United States and to stiffen North Korea's resolve to oppose the United States. And Russia has reached out to anti-American regimes such as the Chavez regime in Venezuela, which I must confess is one of the most bizarre uh, Russian adventures. In some of these cases, such as Venezuela, Russia is being purely opportunistic, looking for openings to limit American freedom of action. In some cases, such as their involvement with Iran and North Korea, Russia may possibly be short-sighted, and it may well come to regret the actions that it's taken, at least in the long run. The term soft power figures prominently in Russian strategic uh, plans, such as the foreign policy concept, and this seems to include not just propaganda, but also creating good feelings towards Russia through a variety of different programs and weakening its adversaries. According to official statements of the Russian government, a central mission of public diplomacy or propaganda is to enhance Russia's status or standing in the international system. Russia is quite keenly aware that it suffers a public image problem. One of the principles of the 2000, or 2013 foreign policy concept, for example, was that Russia is, quote, looking to establish Russia's positive in, image worthy of the high status of its culture, education, science, sports achievements. The world doesn't appreciate it, at least not as much as it appreciates itself, of course, and that it's not alone in the world. Um, Russia would appear to have a steep path ahead of it. This is an interesting series of polls taken around the world uh, about asking the question, do you approve or disapprove of uh, the job performance of the leadership of, and then fill in the country? United States, Germany, European Union, China, Russia. Russia is at the bottom, has the lowest level of approval as a global leader. It has a steep path ahead of it. The tools of soft power are legacies of the Soviet period. Obviously, the intelligence agencies such as the GRU are direct descendants of their Soviet predecessors. RT, Russia Today Television, launched in 2015 is the offspring of the state enterprise REI Novosti, which began under Stalin as the Sov Inform Bureau, that is the Soviet Information Bureau, back in the late 30s. Radio Sputnik is the official arm of the, of the government through the RIA, uh, RIA Novosti um, News Agency. It is the offspring of Radio Moscow, begun by the Soviet regime in its very first days. These tools of soft diplomacy are used not only to spread a positive view of Russia, as they have um, from the very beginning, but also to serve the larger strategic goal of weakening Russia's competitors, as they have from the beginning. Like the propaganda, demonstrations, and espionage seen on the 1950s documentary with which we started this hour, These are used in part to spread discord and disorder in the society of Russia's chief competitors so as to distract them, to weaken them. Since the Russian Revolution of 1917, this soft power has been a primary tool whenever Russia lacked the hard power to pursue its objectives. In the last days of World War I and during the Allied intervention, in Russia from 1918 to 1922. In the very first days of the regime, as it was fighting to hold on to power and survive, when faced with an overwhelming threat and without the means to defeat that threat directly, the Russians called on the population of their enemies to rise up and topple their governments. At Brest-Litovsk, that is the very first treaty that they, they negotiated with the Germans to try to end World War War I so that the Bolshevik regime could survive. They threatened the Germans, uh, diplomats across the table, agree to our terms or we will, we will call for a proletarian revolution in your country. Needless to say the German diplomats, good old aristocrats that they were in 1918, uh, just looked wide-eyed and were just, just dazzled by this, uh, this audacity. Today's effort represents a return to these roots. That is, a return to a desperate effort in a time of a very weak state. Should we panic in the face of this new propaganda assault? No, this is truly old vodka and new bottles. We have survived as a democracy and a free society through such assaults in the past. Should we take this seriously? Definitely yes. We need a public discussion among Americans about the nature of the challenge and our best response. We need a discussion that addresses the challenge directly and without accusations about what our fellow citizens may have done in this whole thing so that we can understand what the Russian challenge is and, when, and we can coolly assess our options in dealing with them. But those are issues or topics for our discussion period once we've turned off the camera and microphones. <laughs> if you want to talk to me, if you want to uh, ask me uh, questions, further questions, if you want to correct me in anything I said today, uh, please feel free to contact me uh, through my email account. Thank you. You've
0: been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.